to the Deadology Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Weiner, coming to you from Pencil Hill Studio, New Paltz, New York. This is the eighth episode of the Deadology Podcast, and on this episode, we'll examine a most examined topic, 5877 Barton Hall, The Road to Immortality. The Grateful Dead's performance on that night May 8, 1977, on the campus of Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, was huge. It has stood the, ta- the test of time, a truly great uh, performance worthy of much of the praise it has received. But a whole folklore and legacy has also developed an almost anti-Cornell pushback, uh, because whenever you put something on a pedestal like Cornell was put on a pedestal, uh, that there's going to be a lot of critics who say, hey, wait a minute, this is not the greatest show ever. Oscar Wilde once said, there is only one thing in life that is worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. Cornell is definitely the most talked about show in Grateful Dead history, and what I'm going to focus on really is that road to immortality how that developed because it's it's a, such an intriguing story and it's unlike any other show in Grateful Dead history. You look at other great shows like Take, Vanita, Oregon, August 27th, 1972, Ken Kesey's Farm. Uh, that's a, a show in folklore, probably thousands of people naked. It's 120 degrees out there. The Grateful Dead are playing in their prime in 1972, just killing it. It's the Sunshine uh, Daydream documentary. There's no pushback against that show. It's a great show, undeniable. But Cornell has pushback, um, and we're going to jump into those reasons. Um, First, let me let you know where I stand on Cornell. I love the show. I'm a pro-Cornell guy. Um, I I think there's there's reasons why it's it's, it's received that that pushback, but um, I don't think it's anywhere close to the greatest show of all time. Well, maybe it is close, but it's definitely not the greatest show of all time. Might be the best show of 1977. I think I put it one. But from that month of May, there's a 1A, a 1B, a 1C. Uh, You got the Alabama show, May 17th. Fox Theater, May 19th. I mean, that, that month, they were all so good. The Buffalo show right after Cornell, May 9th. Day before it in Boston Garden, May 7th. Uh, but there's something about Cornell. It has it had a, had a certain sex appeal. Um, it's, it was a lot different than the other shows from that from that month, as far as it's in Barton Hall, at Cornell, a place the Grateful Dead never played before. A little different than the theaters and sports arenas that they they were playing at the time. Um, so, and also on that particular night, adding to the folklore, it was it's May eighth. You think there would be nice spring weather? But it was rainy and cold when uh, the, the crowd lined up outside to get in. And then the snow, the, the rain turned into snow. And when people left the show, it was uh, an inch or two on the ground. It was snowing pretty steady, which is a pretty trippy thing to happen on May 8th. Uh, so there's a lot of unique things that happened at this show. And it's definitely Barn Hall is not a, a concert hall kind of place, whereas other places, arenas, theaters, were built for concerts. I think all this kind of added to the the magic, uh, the, the oral magic that happened that night on May 8th. 
Let me take you back to how I first discovered uh, Cornell. Uh, the year is 1981. Um, I have five Grateful Dead bootlegs. I just started collecting, uh, just totally swept up in the Grateful Dead, complete enthusiasm for it. My friend dubbed me a tape of Cornell and did give me like a heads up, this, is, this tape's going to blow your mind. So he handed me the Maxell XL2 tape. Um, the, you know, it was, the songs weren't written out on it, but I knew a Scarlet Fire was coming. It was going to be the first Scarlet Begonias into Fire in the Mountain in my collection. So I was pretty psyched to hear it. We were at a party that night. Um, may have taken, not may have, took, took a Quaalude, had a good time. The next morning is the first time I heard it. And it was the most memorable, one of the most memorable drives of my life. Um, I was going with my, with my father to the dentist. We lived in Nanuet, New York. And the dentist was in Yonkers, a perfect 30 minutes away. I wasn't even thinking in terms of this, but it was perfect for the Scarlet Fire. And I'm still feeling real good from that Quaalude the night before. And I pro probably did a couple of bong hits in the morning. Jeez, I'm 17 and having a good time. Uh, you know, the, the whole world is the Grateful Dead to me at this point. It's all so exciting and new. So I, I take the tape out of the case. I put it in. You know, you got the uh, take a step back. And then Phil just thunders the beginning of that Scarlet Begonias, man. It's so distinctive. When I hear it on the Grateful Dead channel, like when, when they play that version, I know right away there's nothing like it. The whole band just explodes into the Scarlet Begonias in, in a unique way. And it, it's a real nice Begonias. But man, once they hit that, uh, the the middle jam that goes from, not, not the middle jam, the, the outro that goes from Scarlet into Fire, it just it took me into another world, man. I had never heard anything like that. Don is scat singing. Keith's playing some trippy piano stuff. Uh, you know, Weir. There's the little drum vamps. Like everybody's doing something cool that I've that I've never heard of before. But it's all layered on top of each other brilliantly. It's a like a like they a sonic sculpture. They were molding a masterpiece. And it was just, it, it took me, like, I'm, I was just, I was breathless, drooling, li listening to this. I was like, I've never heard any kind of music like this, where, where a band just, could just go into that hypnotic place. And as they're, I, I like to call that segue paradise. Uh, the Grateful Dead had been doing that in songs like Not Fade Away, into Going Down the Road, or Dark Star going into whatever it went into, Sugar Magnolia, or St. Stephen. Um, but, but... Really, the Scarlet Fire Jam, it's, it's, it's an incredible, you know, mind-blowing thing, and especially this version. This was, I think, the first time where they really nailed the Scarlet Fire, and they were just savoring it. And it, almost like they were creating a winter wonderland. You, you could hear it through the tape, um, you know, in barn halls. It was snowing outside that day. And towards the end of the, uh, there really is no end or beginning. They erased the line between Scarlet and Fire, but Garcia is ripping these hot uh, begonias licks as the rest of the part of the, the rest of the band is going into fire so it's uh, that beautiful beautiful straddling it's almost a song unto itself uh between scarlet and fire so that just uh, i'm going down the road i'm we're probably on the palisades going over the tappan Zee bridge uh headed on to the springbrook parkway and i'm just lost in this incredible music playing it pretty loud my dad wasn't a grateful dead fan but he was, he was a nice man. He, he let me play the music and was, was playing at a pretty good clip. And the other thing that really struck me, and this was kind of 
the last five minutes of the drive as we're pulling up to the dentist. The de- I might as well immortalize the dentist right now. His name is Dr. Lasner. And this was the last time I ever went to see him. We moved to a, a dentist much closer uh, to where we lived. But the last five minutes is Fire in the Mountain is the best instrumental you'll ever hear in a Fire in a Mountain. It's every second, like the first 30 seconds, best fire of the you know, the first 30 seconds of the outro jam. On and on it goes. They are just com- completely on fire, almost the opposite of what we heard in the middle of the hypnotic Scarlet Fire transition. This is just pure power, raging. And they, they hit the climatic uh, end of the fire, and then they build a bridge to do like a double crescendo kind of thing. And just a complete, uh, you know, unbelievable, mind-blowing uh, uh, jam there. Like if I was to, if there's a jam, you want to, someone says, where's the power of the Grateful Dead? What makes them so special? Impress me with something. You got four minutes, go. I would go with that uh, that Fire in the Mountain jam. It's like that incredible. It gets me every single time I, I hear it. And I've heard it. Uh, hundreds, what am I saying, hundreds, thousands and thousands of times since that that night. But um, yeah, so that Scarlet Fire just blew me away. And I came around to let the rest of the tape. You got your estimated, St. Stephen, Not Fade Away, St. Stephen, uh, The Incredible Morning Dew. So it's a huge tape, but the, the Scar- that Scarlet Fire just put me on notice, man. I'm going into a, a new realm of uh, Grateful Dead loving from that moment forward. So the version of the Cornell tape that was circulating in those days was a great, great audience recording. I believe Jerry Moore was the taper. Um, I didn't keep track of those kind of things when I was uh, recording, uh, not when I was recording, when I was uh, collecting tapes back in the day. But um, you didn't even wish for a soundboard. It was, it was like that good. Of course, the Betty Cantor, Betty Boards would uh, would surface. I think in 1988 uh, they would they would surface and they would give um, everybody a, a brilliant uh, recording of the Cornell show. But the legend was already there. Um, it, it had already uh, grown exponentially before the, before the Betty Board of Cornell was even available. And the, the Cornell show back in those days it was almost like a litmus test if you were talking to another deadhead who was a collector. He had, if he was a serious collector, had more than 20 tapes. He or she had the Cornell tape, the 5877. It was, it was like that revered already. And so there's, the, the reason it became, you know, that revered was the performance. Um, you know, it, it's not like there was a committee out there uh, trying to, the, the, the Grateful Dead had no interest in pushing Cornell, building the legend. There wasn't a student body, Cornell pushing it. It earned it the old-fashioned way, by word of mouth, and um, it just kept propagating through the years. So when it eventually did surface as a Betty board, everybody couldn't wait to get that Betty board, the Cornell. So everything's steamrolling in the right direction for this uh, Cornell show. It's um, it's a must-have. It's in everybody, every uh, Deadhead Collector's collection in the year 1987, and uh, at this point, what would turn it in the other direction where there would be pushback against Cornell? And it's very simple uh, what, what happened. And this really is the beginning of how the, the pushback against Cornell happened. Um, a, a brilliant uh, Bible came out, Grateful Dead Bible, Dead Base, in 1987. It was the Bible, that's the word I have to use. That's how 
important this book book was. It had all the set lists for the first time in one place. It was like an encyclopedia, and it was so brilliantly brilliantly done. And a couple of show reviews, but every stat and every which way you would ever want to see it. If you were uh, like a deadhead back in 1987, you had one of these and you were ripping through it and the cover was torn and you were going back and forth just looking at all the different shows, um, what opened first sets in 1978. The statistics in this are every which way. It's as complete as the baseball encyclopedia reference, but except with the Grateful Dead um, you know, statistics. So uh, this this was amazing to to view this book for the first time in 1987. I remember the first time I saw it, I was in Albany University. I wasn't going there, but I was visiting my friends, Larry and Doug, Tapers. They got the book. We were just scouring through it, commenting on everything. There was one section which we had a good laugh at, and that was where people, people were polled and asked to tell you what their favorite show was and then to tell you what their favorite versions of just about every song was. And the, the funny part was, like, everything was Cornell. Cornell was the number one show. Um, rightfully so, Cornell was uh, was number one on Scarlet Fire. Uh, Morning, well, but let's let's say not number one, but, but let's say they were at least deserved to be in the top ten of all these. Scarlet Fire, Morning Dew, Not Fade Away, uh, Dancing in the Streets. Those were all great versions, arguably number one or somewhere in the top ten. So that made sense. But almost every freaking song from Cornell ended up as the number one song. Jack Straw was voted the greatest Jack Straw of all time. Now, there's 200 better versions of Jack Straw. Uh, The Grateful Dead took Jack Straw to a new realm in 78 and 79. And so many better versions. The the Cornell version is very good, but it's not even close to being the best version. And then Estimated Profit, Cornell, best version. Well, once again, 78, 79, Cornell, I I mean, Estimated became an open-ended song with a much longer jam and much better versions came out there, but Cornell was the common denominator. It's the best Estimated. It got voted the best St. Stephen, which is crazy because there's so many better St. Stephens. It was was like a mockery. We were laughing at it. So here you got this great show, but now it's being completely blown out of proportion um, by this, by in a dead in dead base by the people who were polled, and it makes sense that it happened because everybody had the tape and loved it. But just some of these versions that were voted the best just completely inaccurate. Um, everything from that show, Ro Jimmy. It's it's hard to differentiate between Ro Jimmy's, but almost everything from Cornell ended up in the number one spot. So that's I think where the detractors uh, started. So Dead Bass came out consistently for, they, they kept updating it, and they even updated these polls for many years. The, the last Dead Bass I got was uh, Dead Bass 50, um, just obviously celebrate the 50 years of uh, Grateful Dead. Uh, it's, it's, I'm looking at it right now, it's sitting on my, uh, my desk right here. I, uh, with all the things available to us online, I still go to this, this Dead Bass all the time, it's not as essential as it was back in the day, but it's still, it's, it's got everything you need. There's just things in there you could find that you can't find anywhere else. And uh, they've updated the polls, and still all these polls have Cornell, the individual songs from Cornell, uh, way overrated. And as much as I love Cornell, you know, it's laughable at some of these versions. So it's easy to see why this book 
which for 30 years is sitting on, on desks of Grateful Deadheads. Um, and Cornell is number unfairly number one, all these different versions from Cornell. You would understand where this anti, where this pushback would start from. And um, then you get uh, all these internet forums um, and then, then, then later Facebook and Twitter. And you start discussing Cornell and legitimately someone could come on there and say it's overrated and they have a damn good point. If you, if you consider that all these songs have been labeled as best ever versions, they're not. But um, so that's, that's really, I think, where this big pushback came. And then also everybody got the other 77 tapes and, and realized that, hey, there's other shows that are definitely in Cornell's class. And yes, the Betty Boards did propagate the legend of Cornell. So my recollection on the Betty Boards, um, I haven't read the story in a while, but um, Betty Cantor made these incredible recordings, uh, you know, working for the Grateful Dead, and they were in a storage locker, and the storage locker, you know, was sold, and the tapes were auctioned off. Um, well, that would have made a nice uh, episode of Storage Wars if they if they ever caught that that one on, uh, you know, obviously way before Storage Wars, but that that would be the ideal episode for for that TV show. But um, yeah, so they auctioned off the tapes, and eventually many of these Betty boards um, got into circulation. I think the first batch that hit the uh, uh, hit the streets, as they say, uh, 1988. Um, I remember getting a few of them. I got the Cornell show. And to me, it didn't even make that much of a difference because, you know, I already had the the greatest respect for the show. It was just an upgrade, which is always welcome. I was never too much of an audio snob, but the, the sound, the Betty boards were incredible. What I remember from the Betty boards at that time were I got the Swing Auditorium was the first time I heard that Betty board. Um, but, well, the first time I heard that show so I was kind of taken back by some of these uh, shows that I had never heard before. The Swing Auditorium, February 26, 1977, and also the New Haven show on May 5th, uh, another uh, legendary 77 show. So I was kind of caught up in, in those shows. But there's no doubt when those Betty boards came out, everybody wanted to get their hands on Cornell, which made it even sexier and more famous than it had been before. So it, it was already legendary by word of mouth, organic, and now the Betty Boards just brought it to another level. As uh, technology changed through the years, our perception of Grateful Dead shows uh, changed as well. It used to be we would look at a cassette tape, and that, that, was, that was the currency, a Maxell XL2 tape and what was on it. For every time I listened to um, Cornell uh, 70, the second set of uh, Cornell 77. Um, I, for, for every time I listened to the first set, I probably listened to the second set 50 times. So like that second set, just the, the tape, the way we wrote up the songs on the tape, it, it, it was huge. But now with the uh, change in technology, once you move to CDs, you got a whole show in your hand. You got a nice little three CD thing and you're viewing it as a whole show. Um, I think one of the first Dick's picks that was three CDs was the Hollywood Sportatorium, um, or maybe that was two. It could have been, it could have been three. They left some songs off, but you got the, uh, Binghamton show was one of the early ones. Um, Phil Maurice, 1970, suddenly deadheads are 
seeing a show as a whole instead of two individual tapes. And all of a sudden, these these new shows just seemed huge because you're you're taking the whole thing in um, as a as a three CD set. You're seeing the whole show, not just a, a set like you did with Cornell. And as as time goes on and more things become available, um, Cornell in some people's eyes lost a little bit of luster, and rightfully so. I mean, all these great Dick's picks coming out, and then as years roll on, all the Europe '72 shows, which back in the day we didn't have three three uh, Maxell tapes of uh, of a great Europe '72 show. I think we had Radio Luxembourg, and that was it. So um, the digital age brought about a full view of what the Grateful Dead really did in 72, 73, 74. Unless you were there, um, you, you didn't see that. But once people started seeing that, then Cornell, you know, is not up on a pedestal anymore. There's all these great shows from these other years that people are saying, how can we call Cornell so great when there's all these other great shows that they deserve maybe even more acclaim than Cornell? So it's a very... Um, you know, very good point, and this kind of stuff was debated like uh, on and on on these websites. I remember I f- my first, um, I got my first personal computer because of the Grateful Dead. I learned you could download a CD, and I was like, my God, I got to go out and get one of these personal computers. It was around 2000, and I started collecting CDs, and you know, and the, the CDs where you would download, a, you, you would find a rogue site that had Grateful Dead. Uh, uh, shows on it it would take two three days to download it but i, I was all in investing all my time into getting into getting these shows and uh you know there were websites um in new york we had the morning do website probably a hundred guys a couple of girls on there we would just vociferously argue this is the best that's the best you know you you, you would think we were about to come to blows and meet in an alley but actually we met at bars and had a great time uh great bunch of uh, people I met on that morning do a uh, radio show website, but I'm sure Cornell was one of the bigger topics and we would argue, uh, argue that all, all the time. But technology brought uh, a different way of viewing everything. People got to see more in terms of whole shows as opposed to cassette tapes. With cassette tapes, the greatest cassette tape I ever had was that second set Cornell. You can't put 90 minutes, a better 90 minutes of music on a cassette tape. So really things did change over time. But once again, all the pushback, all the discussion of Cornell only uh, uh, only put it higher on the pedestal, made it more immortal than ever before. Now let's take a quick look at the actual show itself and see where there might be some holes in it and see what the strengths of Cornell are here. So um, on May 8th, 1977, they opened up with Minglewood Blues. Uh, loser is next. It's a really nice loser. Good solo in there from Jer. El Paso, and they love each other. First four songs. Stop the presses. This is the greatest show ever. Well, of course not. It's uh, for a four-song beginning. Not all that interesting. Um, in in 1977, they they were killing it early. Uh, the, the next night, they played Help on the Way Slipknot Franklin's to open. So it's not the most exciting of opening, even though the band's playing well. Uh, we go to the middle part of the show, Jack Straw in the fifth spot. This is where, where the magic really kicks in, where you could just feel that the band's, you know, picking up on something, man, because that, that Jack Straw is hot. Uh, Jerry's just percolating all the way through. 
a nice rhythmic uh, jamming in, toward, towards the end. Um, obviously not an all-time great version as it was uh, depicted by the, by the Poles in um, Dead Bass, but probably up to that point, uh, as good a Jack Straw as there was, uh, definitely this is where the show really started taking off. Excellent deal. I just heard this in the car the other day. Of course, I love all the deals with the great ending jams, which they weren't doing in 77, but I really was surprised at how hot this was when I heard on hearing it again in the car the other day. Very good lazy lightning supplication following a great, a great, you know, one, two punch there. Um, love the lazy lightning supplication, but there are better versions as years went on, but uh, they really start again things cooking here. Brown eyed women, beautiful version. Mama tried for Mother's Day. Yes, this was Mother's Day. Another uh, another part of the folklore of uh, five eight seventy seven, and then we got two more songs. This is a twelve song first set. The length, no problem with that. Yeah, great, great to get twelve songs in the first set. Uh, the Road Jimmy, very hypnotic. Really one of the better versions you'll ever hear. Road Jimmy, and they close out the street with Dancing in the Street. Tremendous version. Um, probably top five, top seven for me. So calling it the best version ever wasn't far-fetched. Um, but if you want to hear what I think the best version is, a week later, they played in St. Louis. St. Louis, the St. Louis on May 15th, 77 show. I think that's the most underrated 70, well, one of the more underrated 77 shows. I also, 10977 in Denver, Colorado is probably the most underrated. But that St. Louis show, man, it, smoking. But the dancing in the street and that first set, Nothing like it. The band just goes off and, you know, a law scat singing and a big dramatic flourish ending. Um, better than this uh, Cornell version, but this Cornell version is a monster. It's a, <laughs> such, a, such a great version. So take a look at that first set. As good as it is, the first set before in Boston Garden on May 7th and the one the day after in uh, Buffalo War, War Memorial Auditorium are actually better first sets. Um, that's how great this freaking band was playing in May of 77. So um, the, the Cornell first set, um, what they, the one thing where I think, obviously this is a band just on the road <laughs> trying to do the best they can, but if, you, if, you, if there was one thing, if I was, you know, if, if you're a coach and you say, how could they have made this set better? They were missing one of the blockbuster songs of 77. Um, and and the first, out of the first set, Sugary, Mississippi Half Step, and Music Never Stopped were off the charts in 1977. Just the band was killing it. You know, it was just right up their alley. And the, some of the best versions you'll ever hear of those songs, and those are songs they played frequently in the first sets. They're all missing from Cornell. And uh, the one that they could have played was Sugary. They had played Mississippi Half Step and Music Never Stopped the night before in Buffalo. Uh, but Sugary was last played in New Haven. What a great version that was on May 5th. If they would have taken out the Love Each Other and put a Sugary in there instead, it just would have cemented this as the best show of 1977. Just make that first set just a little bit hotter. Put one of the great songs. Uh, the, for me, the three best songs they were doing in the first set were all were all not there in Cornell. It had nothing to do with the performance. The, perform, the performance in Cornell was great in that first set. It was just missing one of the big three uh, tunes that they were doing that year in the first set. So the second set is damn near perfect. But the the one thing that could have made it better or um, 
I don't even know if it make it better. It could have made it longer. It was after Morning Dew. They, they ended the show Morning Dew. It was a pretty cool statement just to walk off after playing a great Morning Dew. But let's say they had a, a hot sugar mag and then did an Uncle John's, a, do, a double encore, Uncle John's One More Saturday Night. That would have put it over the top as the best show of 77. And if we make these little alterations... Uh, then it's back into the conversation is possibly a greatest show of all time. Uh, but as it was, it's uh, pretty damn amazing. So the Scarlet Fire, I already mentioned, I, I talked about that. No need to go into that again, but um, it is my, my, probably my favorite Scarlet Fire. I, I like the Hartford 10-14-83. Uh, Scarlet Fire got a little longer in 1978 when they added a verse to Fire. But uh, this is definitely yeah, probably the best Scarlet Fire ever. But if you just take May 77, you got the Alabama Scarlet Fire, May 17th, Lakewood, May 21st. Uh, these are just tremendous Scarlet Fires. The New Haven one's pretty good, the one right before Cornell. Um, the Cornell one was the eighth Scarlet Fire. And then after May 77, I think Scarlet Fire kind of chilled out a little bit. They just couldn't reclaim what they, the magic they had, they had caught in May with that. So uh, great Scarlet Fire. Estimated's next. Um, it's not the greatest estimated of all time, but up to that point, uh, very few estimated is good. Definitely top notch. Just a, it is a great estimated profit. And then Saint Stephen follows. One thing here on, um, I believe on in, in that Saint Louis show on May fifteenth is the first time they went estimated into another song. I could be wrong about that. I know it's the first estimated eyes. So. Um, Perhaps if, if they would have done something like that when estimated Saint, into St. Stephen would have had a little more impact. Uh, but hey, that was that was something down the road that was to come. They did est- estimate into St. Stephen in the Winterland, 6977. That's a terrific show, one of the better ones of 77. They also did it in Toronto on uh, November 2nd. So um, very good estimated. Then they go into St. Stephen. And just the impact of playing St. Stephen. Uh, if incredible on tape must have been off the charts being in Barton Hall for that um, inside that blue facade building and, and by the way one other thing about Barn Hall I went to visit there I've never seen a show there um, they have a, a map in the background um, and over the map it says Cornell University and it's almost like saying the world is yours it's so cool to look at, and that's what the band must have been looking at. There's just there's something about that place. It just it had a certain magic, and it definitely rubbed off on their their first time in there. So uh, Saint Stephen, um, definitely not the greatest version of Saint Stephen, even though it was voted that. Um, and it breaks into not fade away. It's not fade away. It's out of control, man. It just uh, jamming on and on. It's you know it's got that total Cornell motif of uh, greatness, hypnotic. Hot jamming, um, definitely worthy of contention for for a great ever, you know, great not fade away. Um, somewhere in that fifteen to twenty minute range, uh, breaks into some uh, drum and you know, drums and fill uh, portion, which is very cool. And then it, this part of the Saint Stephen's great. They beautifully noodle, noodle back into Saint Stephen um, after after the drum is bass part, and you know just. The, I could see being inside a barn hall, looking at that map of Cornell University. Can you answer? Yes, I can. But what would be the answer to the answer, man? And then they drop the hammer. Morning dew. 
freaking incredible. But the, the other cool thing about this, and this really gives Cornell another layer of distinction, is this is the only time the Grateful Dead went St. Stephen into Morning Dew. So, you know, anybody who's going anti-Cornell, there's just way too much greatness in this show. It deserves its respect and its, its place on a pedestal, not the greatest show of all time, but up there, def- definitely up there. So the Morning Dew comes around, excellent version, everything is going, going cool, you're loving it on tape, you're, you're, at the, you're in Barn Hall going nuts. The jam uh, is long, it's one of the best collectively from, from the Grateful Dead as a band. There's total synergy there, it's crazy, just rambling forward. Um, but it's not my favorite Morning Dew, I'd probably put it somewhere in the top 10. The only reason I say that is Jerry doesn't separate himself, which he usually does and completely goes off. Probably because the band is so freaking hot on this night and they're wor- working as one organism. Um, you know, it's, they're playing as quick and as, and as long and as hard as possible. But one, one of the great things that I love in Morning Dew is how Jerry separates himself from the pack and just completely goes off, which he almost couldn't on this night because the band was so hot. So... Um, yeah, if if you say it's the best morning do, you couldn't couldn't argue with it because it's the best um, best band version of Morning Dew, the best Grateful Dead as a band version of Morning Dew, even if it wasn't Garcia's greatest solo in the uh, Morning Dew there. And then one more Saturday night is the encore, cool version, but it's just uh, it was Saturday night, so that's what what had to happen. Um, but yeah, uh, a, a one of a kind show, definitely worthy. Worthy of the praise, the folklore, and the legacy. So to close out here, I just want to tell you about my first pilgrimage, my, and my second and my third pilgrimage to Barn Hall on the anniversary dates of, uh, of the immortal May 8th show. Um, I wrote a book, Grateful Dead, 1977, The Rise of Terrapin Nation. And, you know, as, as I'm doing this... Um, you know, and I'm talking about Cornell and all the great shows and going through that year, uh, show by show. I just had this itch to go up to, to Barton Hall. I had never been to Ithaca. I had never been to Cornell University. I had to go up there and see what it was all about. And, you know, I, I went up there. It was uh, every, everything you, like, like folklore you would think it would be. Up on a hill. Ithaca is a beautiful city. Hundreds of waterfalls within the area. Um, beautiful campus, and I got to Barton Hall, walked up to the door. I, f- I figured I would just be taking pictures, walking around, you know, with security after 9-11. You know, I, I don't think I'm getting into a col- anywhere in a college campus and walking through the door, but I walked right through the door. So I spent the better part of uh, a day or two listening to the show in there. I shot some hoops in, uh, in Barton Hall, and I just got a feel and I could see and sense how that great show happened. By the way, talking about uh, books on uh, Barn, Barn Hall. Peter Connors wrote an excellent book on uh, Cornell 77. I'd recommend uh, checking that one out too. And then uh, my pilgrimages to Barn Hall led to another another book. Um, I was I was heading up on May May 8th, 2022 on the 45th anniversary. I was going to be interviewed on, I was interviewed on the uh, Tales from the Golden Road uh David Gans, Gary Lambert, 
had a nice little interview, but I figured, hey, let me go to Ithaca and do this. Where I was talking about my Europe 72 book. And, you know, I, and on the way there, I was just I digging the road trip, digging this whole pilgrimage thing of going back to places on the anniversary dates. I came up with an idea to do a whole tour uh, as I was going to this, uh, going to Cornell on uh, May 8th. And that's the the theme of uh, the crux of my following book, The Grateful Pilgrimage. I did an entire 1983 fall tour in October. I went back to the venues, got into the venues, did what I did in, in, in Barnton Hall. So um, anyway, May 8th, I, 2022, I get back in the Barnton Hall, just like the last time I was there, <laughs> played a little basketball again, had a good time. And I, when I had this idea to do the tour, I was like, let me let me do this tour, have the book finished and published, and I'll come back in 2023. Um, and I named the book The Grateful Pilgrimage. Everything went as planned. I had a great time, did my writing, had it completed, had it published. And lo and behold, um, I go up to, I'm getting ready to go up there, and all of a sudden the Dead & Company, a couple months beforehand, announced that they're doing their show on uh, May 8th, 2023, a benefit show. So here, here's what happened, a difference in one year. I'm in there in 2022. I'm the only deadhead. Could have been somebody else there. I don't know. But when I was in Barn Hall, I was the only deadhead there in 2022. And I have this idea for the Grateful Pilgrimage. The following year, I have my book finished, published, and there's 10,000 deadheads, in, in the, at least in the, not in Barn Hall. It can never hold that many, obviously. But at least in the area and thousands in Barn Hall watching Den and Company put on a great show that night. So it was pretty uh, ironic or whatever, whatever word you want to, want to use for that, man. But um, Den and Company further uh, helped solidify the legend of Barn, Barn Hall by playing that show there in 2023. And uh, there's, there's no, no escaping it. The show is worthy of the praise and it's been officially stamped as part of Grateful Dead folklore uh, for good or ill, mostly for for good. All right, so that's it. Episode 8 of the Deadology podcast. I send my piece on uh, Barn Hall. Um, I couldn't wait to May 8th. I had, <laughs> had to get that one off my chest. I, I love the show. It's uh, It was great to even revisit it and listen to it again uh, in, in preparation for this podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Howard Weiner. Uh, my books are available at tangledupintunes.com and maybe even more conveniently on Amazon. You can find all, all the stuff there. Uh, thanks for listening. Keep on keeping on. Peace out. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Deadology Podcast. <laughs>